Old Testament to Genesis chapter 32. Continue to read through the book of Genesis as we spend our time in the Gospel of Matthew. Our Old Testament reading comes to us from Genesis chapter 32. We'll read verses 1 through verse 21. Read through verse 21. This is God's very word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met with him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Machanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camps into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, and God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets with you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We hear one of the many prayers that God's servants have offered up 
to their God from time immemorial. Uh, Even in those very passages, Jacob praying in his distress, pleading the Lord's excellencies and the Lord's promise for mercy extended to a servant. And here we have the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was a man of prayer. Remarkably, this excellent person, true God and true man, as the Messiah, showed himself to be a man who prayed, prayed regularly, prayed frequently. And here he instructs his followers on prayer. And so we take this morning Matthew chapter 6, verses 6, verses 5 through 8. This is God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. Father, what a a good gift prayer is. uh, That we can uh, call upon you as Father uh, in the confidence that you would have us Enjoy as uh, your children a blessing uh, secured for us uh, in the true Son, the eternal Son, uh, the Christ whom you set forth uh, to save us and to bring us near. And that you have equipped us with the Holy Spirit uh, who makes us understand uh, the excellencies of who you are on display. Uh, in creation uh, and in redemption, uh, making us to know you through your word and through the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We are confronted this morning, Lord, with the dreadfulness of our sin uh, in that even our highest privileges as your children are vulnerable uh, to uh, that perverse tendency of our heart uh, to make everything about ourselves and thereby eclipse the blessing which you extend to us freely in Jesus Christ. Uh, So help us this day. Help us this day to see your excellencies on display and to have a heart that earnestly desires uh, to take hold of them by faith and to delight in the trust that we are welcomed to have uh, before you as our Father in the Son by the Spirit. We ask in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. I feel bad for brides these days. They don't get enough pity. Brides are in a tough spot. I've had the opportunity to officiate a number of weddings. Weddings have become rather extravagant, haven't they? 
there's quite an industry that has emerged around the wedding day, around the culture of the wedding day. The budgets are large. <laughs> the performances are impressive. And at the center of the day in this modern conception of the wedding is not the marriage, <laughs> but the bride. Mm. There's even shows about this. Bridezillas? I don't know. Is that a thing? I think it's a thing. I don't, I've never seen it, but I'm sure the premise is not hard to guess at. <laughs> now, I've never met a bride who didn't look lovely on their wedding day. And to a certain extent, I think that's good and right and fitting. It is not an ordinary day, and that the bride looks her best is wonderful. But you get the sense that if you were to ask the bride, hey, why all the trouble to look this way? Why the thousands of dollars on the dress, on the hair, on the makeup? Why the spa day leading up to this? Why bother looking your best? You get the sense that the answers would vary. Many would probably just say, well, it's my wedding day. That's what you do. Fair enough. I think there would be a majority of people that would say, so that people can see my loveliness. You get the sense that it's a display of the bride's beauty in front of the people for the sake of wowing them with her loveliness. I suspect the minority report would be, I went through all this trouble to look beautiful for my beloved. I don't know, maybe I got the wrong impression. I'm sure it's not true of any of the women here. Doubtlessly, you're all perfected in holiness. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You know that's not true. <laughs> the wide conception is that it's not for the husband that the bride looks loveliest, but the truth of the matter is, is that it is for the husband that she looks loveliest, that it's his gaze whom she's won, fixed upon her, that encapsulates the loveliness of the day. If that kind of picks on brides, let me now turn and pick on all of us. <laughs> it trades on that sinful propensity to make even the loveliest things about ourselves. You hear that on the wedding day. This is my day. How dare anyone get in my way on my day? Men don't say that as much, but they have other things which they claim as their own, which they justify destroying everybody who gets in their way because it's theirs. It's about them. The Lord Jesus Christ is here reminding us of a remarkable privilege. Beloved, you are welcome before the infinite and eternal God as a child is welcome before their father. I mean, this is a passage that is thick with warning, make no mistake, but at the heart of this passage is the assumption of that unfathomable blessing. That you can approach the maker of heaven and earth 
with the same intimacy, the same freedom of access, the same liberty of spirit as a child coming to his or her father. The Lord presses that privilege. He assumes that privilege. In a way, he intensifies that privilege, if you can imagine it. But he also says that so great is our sin, so heinous our corruption, that we can pervert such a privilege extended by an unfathomable magnitude of grace and make it about us. To use it to advance our own purposes and not to rejoice in the glory of God that is made known in welcoming sinners in clothing them so that they can stand before him, in assuring them that he has their good at his infinite heart. Sin is heinous, isn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this passage as perhaps one of the most searching and humbling passages in Scripture. Because it shows just how diabolical sin really is. If we could take such a privilege and pervert it to such an end, who truly understands what sin is capable of? And so how does the Lord address us in the light of such a terrible truth? Well, by refreshing us in the light of such a wonderful truth. The Lord Jesus Christ refreshes us in our understanding of the gift that we have purchased by him, namely that we do approach the Almighty, that he is our Father, that this blessing has been extended unto us in freedom, and that we are the humble recipients, the humble recipients of such a magnitude of blessing. And it says the light of that dawns that our soul is jockeyed into the proper frame towards our God as we approach him in prayer and towards other people as we walk the Christian life in their presence. So let's consider this morning the mighty blessing of prayer. First, consider the gift of prayer. And then second, we'll consider the two dangers Christ highlights surrounding prayer. First, the gift of prayer. Once more, the Lord affirms an ongoing spiritual exercise. He doesn't introduce the concept of prayer here. He says, well, once upon a time, it was all about earthly things, and now it's about spiritual things. No, he says God's purposes, in a sense, have been singular from the beginning. He desires children to call upon him. He desires his creatures to call upon him. He desires his creatures to pray to him. We read one of the many prayers in God's providence once more. Jacob, when did he pray? He prayed at a number of different junctures in his life. There we saw in the face of distress, he prayed. What did he pray? 
We pleaded the excellencies of God. You are the one who has done good. You are good. You do good. He pleaded the promises of God. You are the one who has promised to do me good. He knew God, not because he saw him, but because he received the report of him by faith and understood that this was true and thus God could be approached. How many of our blessings are encapsulated in this gift of prayer? Think about it. Think about what's assumed in the exercise of the blessing of prayer. First, God can be found. I mean, in an age of agnosticism, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not, maybe he's knowable, maybe there's not, we say unambiguously, God can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. From time immemorial, God has been pleased to be found. <laughs> he made himself known in the promise. He made himself known in the covenant. In the fullness of time, he has made himself known in the Lord Jesus Christ to a world continually considering the possibility that God might not be findable. We insist, no, he's eminently findable because he's pleased to reveal himself. Isn't that encapsulated, assumed in the gift of prayer? We're not just launching prayers into space, as it were. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> by faith in God's word, by faith in Christ, we offer our petitions unto God. It assumes that God may be approached. Not just that he's found, but that he may be approached. Think about this. We can't even get into the White House. Any of you? Go ahead. Show me I'm wrong. Can, 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 can you get an audience with the current president? Man, I hope one of you isn't like secretly related to somebody high up right now. It would totally undermine my point right now. But there's royalty amongst men. We can't even get an audience with them. The Lord Jesus Christ says, you can approach the infinite and eternal God and be welcomed. <laughs> These are all assumptions in prayer. He is findable. He is approachable. And approaching him, we find not wrath, but welcome it gets better. Because not only are we welcomed, we're given liberty to speak. If I were a king, I wouldn't let 97% of you talk. <laughs> we have a better king than I am. <laughs> he lets us speak and freely. <laughs> with the freedom of children addressing a father. And it gets better still, because even if I would let you speak, I wouldn't listen. <laughs> he listens. He hears us. He hears us with the compassion of a father hearing children. I looked at my wall before I was preparing to preach this sermon, and I saw on my wall a Father's Day card that said, Love, Olivia, Michael, Maisie, Emma can't write yet. <laughs> and I thought, there's no one in the world that would receive a warmer welcome than them. That's the 
picture Christ presses upon our heart in the mighty blessing of prayer, except the excellencies of the one we approach are unfathomable because it's the maker of heaven and earth. It's the almighty Father who is in heaven. It's the one who upholds all things, who has made all things, indeed upholds us right now. Beloved, we have a mighty blessing in prayer. It's one of the sad truths that many of the things that we speak about most frequently are most vulnerable to being least understood or least appreciated just by virtue of their familiarity. Let not the familiarity of prayer, the frequency with which we speak about Christian prayer, dull your senses to the weight of blessing that is encapsulated in prayer, for it is nothing less than the encapsulation of salvation itself, the God who brings us near, the God who welcomes us, the God who provides everything necessary for us to be welcome. Because we're forced to confess that this blessing hasn't been earned by us, has it? We don't even avail ourselves of this blessing with any sort of consistency and faithfulness, let alone possess the merit to say that we've earned this blessing. So how has this blessing come unto us? Well, it's plain here, isn't it? This is the blessing of the Son before the Father. This is the blessing of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the blessing that belongs by natural right to the Lord Jesus Christ extended unto us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have the most intimate identification as his brothers, as his family, as his bride, and thus we rightfully call upon his father as our father. Many of you know my obsession with King Arthur because I talk about it a lot. <laughs> Arthur is the true king. Sir Kay is Arthur's brother by adoption. A gift of divine providence into which he stumbles. <laughs> It's a mighty blessing to enjoy such a relation to such an excellent king. But how perverse Kay's heart would be if he began bandying about that station before others to prove that somehow indeed he was better than all when such a position was extended unto him by providence and providence alone. That's the warning that the Lord orients us to as we consider this mighty blessing of being brought near, of having access to the Father, assured of his welcome in the beloved Son. We're vulnerable on two sides. One, taking this gift and again, perverting it such that we really make it about us. And the other is taking this gift and fundamentally dishonoring the giver whose glory is on display partly in the freedom with which he bestows it. In other words, we're in danger of, of hypocrisy 
and we're in danger of paganism, wherein we believe we coerce and must force God's hand. So let's consider the two dangers that are surrounding prayer. First is the danger of hypocrisy. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You get a sense how times have changed, first of all. (laughs) The idea that you could go into a square and pray loudly and somehow rise in esteem before man, well, things have changed. (laughs) I don't even walk by street preachers and be like, bravo. (laughs) I walk by street preachers and be like, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Like, whatever. (laughs) But maybe the Nationals game isn't the best place for this. (laughs) Maybe the pulpit's the best place for this. Maybe God designed a place for this. Who knows? What do I know? I'm only a minister of the gospel. The idea here was that you could go into public and you could somehow put your piety on display and rise in the esteem of man. And that was indeed the case. You could pray in Jerusalem outside. You know, we've heard. Anyone who's read the Gospels get the sense that the scribes and the Pharisees that were held in the esteem of the people as those who had the appearance of religion. The perversity of that, though. And Jesus says it. They loved it. Martin Lloyd-Jones once more reminds us, though, that we would be mishearing this text if we heard it and said that it was about them because it's not about them. It's about us. It's about the tendencies of our flesh to make things about us, to seize upon everything at our disposal to advance our name. We love to be thought of highly by others. And we will use whatever is at hand in whatever subculture we exist to make that happen. The perversity here, though, is that we mistake the audience of man for the one that truly matters. like that bride that has an eye to everybody looking at her when her glory is before her when her blessing is unfolding in the path that she walks leading to her beloved such is the mistake that we're all vulnerable to again we're not vulnerable to going downtown Minneapolis and reeling off a 45 minute doozy of a prayer. I trust you're not. But we do this, don't we? I mean, in one sense, there is a direct application for ministers, for elders, people who have to pray in public. The idea that I'm somehow performing for you, that you'll stand in awe at my ability to craft a phrase. Oh, that was magnificent. If you haven't been distracted by that point, which is quite possible as well. (laughs) Anyone who has to pray in front of other people is always vulnerable to mistaking the true audience. Have you experienced this? I'm sure that you have. 
Many of you have led small groups or Bible studies. Many of you have led your family in worship and the temptation to pray before others to demonstrate your spiritual excellencies that they may hold you in high regard and marvel at the riches of your insight and the eloquence of your tongue. Oh, silver-tongued one who is rich in eternal life, <laughs> teach us your ways. We love that. I'm vulnerable to it. You're vulnerable to it. But there's other ways, too, closely related. You ever use spiritual-sounding language with one another insincerely to come off as spiritual? You tell someone you're going to pray for them, and then you don't. Why? Well, ultimately, you want them to think well of you, to think that you're spiritual, that you remember them in your prayers, and yet you don't have the decency to carry it out, so you're not. <laughs> you're not. Or you tell someone you are praying for them, and you're not. You do this. You do this. Oh, you do it. You do it. Are you ashamed? Shows how dark our hearts are. Run from the light. Run from it. What about when we utter these empty, religious-sounding phrases? Lord willing, better than I deserve... Lord bless you. I'm not saying you can't say those things in sincerity, but sometimes they ring kind of empty. <laughs> sometimes it seems like you just want to be seen as spiritual. Maybe you don't have the substance. Sincerity. Honesty. Those things are hard to come by, are they not? Earnestness is tough. To say things that you mean and to mean the things that you say. Read Christ's ministry through that lens that he never uttered an empty word. That he never made a vain statement. That he never just filled the silence, said something for the sake of saying something and made that something an attempt to make him come off as better as he really was. We do those things all the time. And it's the same heart on display. What about when you boast in your spiritual disciplines? I've read the Bible this many times. I wake up at 5 a.m. to do my devotions. What time do you wake up? I read through the Bible twice every year. It's the same sort of perversion of the intimate gifts that we do have and that ought to be enjoyed in secret. Meaning they're not to be paraded before others to advance the absurdity of your name. We do this. And it's humbling. And doubly humbling is the fact that God loves us still. <laughs> that he set forth the Son knowing the vast absurdity which makes up our hearts, that we would even go about baptized into the triune name, still stumbling into these things, still doing these things, still not feeling the absurdity of these things. How rich is love. How vast his patience. How incredible his compassion. He gives us a prescription. He says, go and pray in secret. Meaning what? He's not forbidding public prayer. Certainly not. The Lord prayed in front of people. Fed 5,000 and he prayed in front of 5,000 people. 
He raised Lazarus and he prayed in front of the entire array of mourning Jews surrounding Mary and Martha. He prayed in front of the disciples in his high priestly prayers, one of the most beautiful prayers of Christ's life that we have, and he did it in front of people. He didn't always do his praying in private. Yet there's great wisdom in praying in private. We can hear it in that sense when he says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who sees and who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a certain sort of superficial or surface level wisdom that it's good to make time to pray away from others. Jesus did that as well, didn't he? He removed himself. He would withdraw and pray away from others. We find Peter doing that. I think it's the episode right before Cornelius. He's on the rooftop praying and meditating away from others. There's nothing magical about going into a room privately. You can go into a room privately and be guilty of the same sin of desiring others to know that you're in a room privately. When you go bandy it about, like, hey, I pray privately. Bop, 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 bop. You're the worst. <laughs> but there is a goodness about praying in private as well. But the true heart of the matter is sincerity, is it not? Whether you're praying in front of others or whether you're praying in private, keep before you the magnitude of blessing, which is calling upon the name of God in truth and confidence through the Lord Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, I pray every time I preach, every time, let me forget these people. I pray also that I would love you, but like love you by forgetting you. Because the audience is not you dealing in eternal matters, dealing in heavenly realities is being brought before the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, before whom all fall prostrate. That one could do such a thing in a posture of pride is to our infinite shame. To mine, to yours. Such a thing is the flesh. It's the diabolical flesh. The heart he commends here is the heart that he everywhere sets on display, whether he was praying in public or praying in private. It was the earnestness of the Son impressed with the infinite worth of the Father, which puts into perspective everything else as worthless. Relatively speaking, <laughs> that's the heart he presses upon us here. The second danger is the wrong view of God, namely that he has to be coerced. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Whether or not he had the episode in mind, it sounds very much like the episode between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. That pagan prayer. Pagans pray, but it's a different model altogether. Do you remember the scene? The prophets of Baal are running around screaming, cutting themselves from morning till evening. The idea was that they had to force their gods to do something. If they made enough noise, if they made enough cuts, 
if they said the right magical incantation, then God would do what they wanted. What a dark view of God. And it's a variation of the same heart, that it's really about us. That prayer at its heart is about us getting, what God, getting God to do what we want him to do. Isn't that right? We don't think like that anymore. Oh, but you do, you pagans. You think, I didn't have my quiet time this morning. That's why I had a bad day. I didn't get that promotion because I'm not consistent enough in my devotions. My kid's in the hospital because I missed public worship. That's a pagan way to think about God. We think about our prayers or even our worship. If we just pray long enough, it's a mark of true spirituality. I can't tell you how many fathers in our denomination I've had to tell, look, length of family worship is not a sign of piety. Thank you. <laughs> Pentecostal all of a sudden. Again, family worship is a mighty blessing. Prayer is a mighty blessing, but it's not quantity. To approach it that way is inevitably to destroy the thing. Again, he commends a sincere trust in what? What does he say? Your father knows what you need. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's not saying this to discourage us from prayer. He's saying this to encourage us in trust. Because that's the heart of Christian prayer, is it not? The heart of Christian prayer is delighting in that relationship that we now enjoy. That he really does love us. That he really does give us every good gift. And that he has done so not because we've pulled the right lever, not because we've done the right song and dance, not because we've reeled off the right magical incantation, but because he's excellent beyond our understanding. And he freely gives these gifts to his own glory. Beloved, I pray you're not praying, thinking that somehow you've got to bend or twist God's arm to do you good. Every week we celebrate that he has freely done you good, sinner, by giving you the beloved son while you were enemies. Oh, take that conception of the father into your prayers and see if it isn't a heart that says, thy will be done because you know better, because you are better. And you have done me more good than I will ever know and will spend eternity exploring. At the heart of prayer is a right understanding of who God is as our Father, which as we've already had the chance to rehearse, is seen plainly in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
gives and gives and gives to the praise of his Father's name. Approach this one in prayer, beloved. Know that he delights to welcome you. And if you have not yet known the Lord Jesus Christ, make no mistake, the Lord has no obligation to hear your prayers. These are the privileges of children. Children, not by virtue of merit, children by virtue of grace, which is good news for you, sinner, because it means that there is hope. It means you need not earn this privilege. It means the call is to receive this privilege by turning from sin and fleeing to the only mediator between God and sinners who brings sinners near and assures that they have received a filial welcome in the beloved Son. Yes and amen. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this privilege. Teach us to enjoy it aright. Teach us to receive it aright. Guard our hearts from our folly on all sides. Press upon us an understanding of the excellencies of who you are on display in this gospel that we might avail ourselves of all of the privileges that are ours in adoption, that are ours as we walk by the Spirit, that we may come to a richer and greater understanding of who you are. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.